He went to America in 1939 and he is now the head of the Department of Aeronautical Engineering and the Applied Mechanics uh, at Brooklyn. He's a fellow, incidentally, both of the Institute of the Aeronautical Sciences and of the Society. Uh, and uh, I now ask him to deliver his paper on buckling and stability. Professor Hope. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen. Permit me to begin with uh, um, thanking the Council of the Royal Aeronautical Society for the invitation extended to me to deliver this paper. Naturally, I very highly appreciate this honor. At the same time, I feel rather humble because I know that my past achievements in aeronautics compare rather unfavorably with those of most of the men who have delivered this lecture before me. As the title of the lecture, I've chosen Buckling and Stability. To many persons in the audience, this title may seem rather abstract. It was chosen mainly for two reasons. First, the phenomenon of the buckling folding up of a bar upon which a compressive axial load is acting and the bulging of flat and curved panels of sheet subjected to shearing stresses and to compressive stresses is responsible for the proportioning of an overwhelmingly large proportion of the percentage of the structural elements of aircraft. The second reason is a personal one, but not less important. I simply did not have any worthwhile uh, results available for a talk on any other topic. <laughs> if we wish to dwell in the history of columns, and I might say that in the United States at least, we designate any axially compressed, originally straight or slightly curved bar as a column, we have to go back to the dawn of history. Indeed, 2,500 to 2,300 years before Christ, the Egyptians hewed columns out of rock in the tombs of Beni Hassan, which are still visible to visitors to that country. Nevertheless, in the minds of persons with a Western education, the word column is probably associated with the colonnades of the ancient Greek temples. And the most, uh, the best known of these is probably the Parthenon in Athens, which is shown in our first slide. It seems that uh, the columns of the ancient world were erected without the benefit of any theoretical calculations. At least this conclusion must be reached if one reads uh, the book written by Vitruvius Pollio, probably during the reign of the Emperor Augustus or possibly Titus. I would like to quote three paragraphs from this book. Vitruvius speaks about the Greek colonists in Asia Minor and says, There they began to erect fanes and constitute temples to the immortal gods. First they erected the temple of Apollo Pneonius in the manner they had seen it in Ohio, which manner they called Doric because they had seen it first used in the Dorian series. In this temple they were desirous of using columns, but being ignorant of their symmetry and of the proportions necessary to enable them to sustain the weight and give them a handsome appearance, they measured the human foot of a man to be the sixth part of his height. They gave that proportion to their columns, making the thickness of the shaft at the base equal to the sixth part of the height, including the capital. Thus the Doric column, having the proportioned firmness and beauty of the human body, first began to be used in buildings. Afterward, to construct the Temple of Diana, they sought a new order from the same traces, copying the gracefulness of women, and making the thickness of the columns an eighth part of their height in order to give them a taller appearance. Thus arose the invention of these two different orders, one of a masculine appearance, naked and unadorned, the other imitating the slenderness and fine proportion of women. 
but posterity, improving in ingenuity and judgment and delighting in more graceful proportions, fixed the height of Doric columns at seven times their diameter and of the Ionic at eight and a half. This latter order was called Ionic because it was first used by iron. The third, which is called Corinthian, is in imitation of the delicacy of virgins. For in that tender age, the limbs are formed more slender and are more graceful in attire. This is the extent of the column theory known to Vitruvius. <laughs> and very little progress can be recorded until in 1743, Leonhard Euler derived his theory of stability, which is still the cornerstone of all our knowledge of column strength and buckling. At the end of the 18th, uh, of, of the last century, of the 19th century, a number of investigators made careful experiments in order to determine whether the column theory derived by Euler agreed with uh, practical experience. They proved without any doubt that for long columns which buckle below the elastic limit, the theory gave results in excellent agreement with experiment. On the other hand, they also found that short columns always buckled at loads considerably smaller than the loads predicted by the Euler formula. Consider and Engelser were able to give a physical reasoning for this discrepancy, but apparently this information was generally unknown to the engineering world. We can say, therefore, that at the time when the Wright brothers started to build their airplanes <coughs> and gliders, there was a structural theory available, and within this structural theory, a column theory which permitted them to build their columns with the necessary safety and without undue weight. This was a very important factor because, as is well known, the Wright brothers' plane, which flew on December 17, 1903, was a biplane whose two wings were connected with a number of columns. This photograph is, uh, shows one of the columns of the original Wright plane, as it can be seen today in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. The ends of these columns were connected with the wings by means of a sort of uh, universal joints which permitted the warping of the wings, which as is known was the device of the Wright brothers to control the motion of the aeroplane around about the longitudinal axis. At this, the time of uh, the work of uh, the Wright brothers and their early planes, Structural theory was fully developed, but naturally comparatively little was known about aerodynamics and next to nothing about the stability of airplanes. This is the reason why the Wright brothers had to devote most of their energies to the, develop to the solution of the aerodynamic rather than the structural problems. Nevertheless, they did not underestimate the importance of good structural design, as can be seen from a great number of letters which have not yet been published, but which can be read in the Library of Congress in Washington. I would like to quote uh, one from one letter which Wilbur Wright wrote just two weeks before his successful first flight. In, uh, the letter is uh, dated from Kill Devil Hills and uh, says, We have not tried to glide the big machine yet and probably shall not this year as favorable days are very scarce now. We hung it on its wingtips some days ago and loaded the front set of trussing to more than six times its regular strain in the air. We also hung it by the tips and ran the engine screws with the men also on board. The strength of the machine seems okay. <laughs> the feasibility of the use of irrational theory for the buckling of short columns, buckling below, uh, above, the, uh, above the elastic limit of the material, became generally accepted in engineering only after the results of the work done by Dr. T. H. von Kármán were published in 1910, and I'm very happy indeed to see that Dr. von Kármán is here in the audience tonight. <laughs> Uh, the work uh, referred to was Dr. von Kármán's doctoral dissertation, 
and it started out with a theoretical derivation of the exact behavior of columns, both short and long, under the action of centrally applied or eccentrically applied loads. In this analysis, the stress-strain relationship was taken as it was obtained in extremely careful tests by Dr. von Karman on the same material as was used for the manufacture of the columns. He also derived formulas for the buckling load of centrally loaded columns, and uh, he used the basic concepts originally stated by Euler in this investigation. In uh, the approach is approximately like this. One assumes that the column is loaded with the critical load, with the buckling load, in the axial direction perfectly centrally, and then one assumes a small deflection of the middle of the column in the lateral direction. During this deflection, the convex side of the column experiences tensile stresses which are superimposed upon the initial uniform compression and on the convex side, naturally, an added compression appears. On the convex side, this added compression can be calculated, the, the stress corresponding to an added compressive strain can be calculated on the basis of the tangent modulus, which is simply the slope of the stress-strain curve at the particular stress. On the other hand, on the tension side, the tension relieves the original compressive strain, and during this relief, only the elastic part of the deformations can be regained, and for that reason, naturally, Young's modulus must be applied in the calculation of the stresses. In flexure, the total cross-section acts, therefore, partly in accordance with Young's modulus and partly in accordance with tan the tangent modulus. And the combination, or the mean, which has to be calculated, uh, was derived rigorously by Dr. von Karman, both for rectangular solid sections and for the so-called idealized I-section. In his very carefully uh, in his very careful tests, he obtained complete agreement between the predictions of this theory and uh, the results of the experiments. The theory which uh, came to, into being in this manner is today very often referred to as the reduced modulus theory, the effective modulus theory, the von Karman theory, or the double modulus theory. It was in, uh, until 1947, this theory was generally accepted uh, by engineers. But in that year, Francis R. Shanley, at that time of the Lockheed Corporation, suggested that uh, one might use the tangent modulus load, which is obtainable from the Euler formula, by substitution of the tangent modulus in place of the Young's modulus in the calculation of the buckling load of short columns. Shanley's reasoning was uh, approximately the following. He said that naturally the tangent modulus would apply at every single fiber of the cross-section if the compressive strain increased in every section during the buckling process. But then he, concluded, he, he continued, the, this can actually happen in an ordinary column test carried out in the usual testing machine because the column never buckles under a constant load as it is assumed in the classical theory of buckling, but in reality starts to deflect and collapses while the load is being increased in the testing machine. In discussing this new idea, one should uh, remember that the basic systems to which the Shanley idea refers and uh, the system to which the classical theory applies are entirely different. In the classical theory, the stability of an equilibrium system is, is uh, investigated, and this equilibrium system naturally consists of the, uh, of the solid, of the constraints to which it is subjected, and of the forces which are applied to part of its surface. In Shanley's approach, these loads are not fixed at all. They keep changing during the process. And in such a manner, 
it is entirely impossible to define, to, to talk even about a buckling load unless the concept of buckling during a loading process is defined more accurately. It was the purpose of an investigation commenced at the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn about four years ago to look into this matter and to find out in more detail what happens actually in the buckling process. This investigation can naturally be carried out only by means of the dynamic equations of motion. And it is the purpose of my talk tonight to present some of the results obtained in this investigation of ours. The column which will be, will underlie all these investigations is shown in this first diagram. It is assumed to be slightly curved at the outset. Such an assumption must be made because there is no perfect column in existence. A machinist can produce the column only within given tolerances, and a testing engineer can load it only approximately centrally, but never perfectly centrally. But even beyond the impossibility of fulfilling the requirements of perfection in a test, we have to make this assumption in the analysis because in the absence of any deviation from perfect symmetry, a perfectly symmetric system would always remain perfectly symmetric. A column which is perfectly elastic would simply shorten in agreement with uh, Hooke's law and an elastoplastic material would be compressed, compressed to a pancake but it would still remain perfectly symmetric and would not buckle. In all our investigations, we have assumed, therefore, a certain amount of initial deviation from straightness, and in most cases, we assume this deviation in the form of a half sine wave, and the amplitude of this deviation divided by the radius of gyration of the cross-section was, was designated by the small letter E, which means that E times rho was the maximum amplitude of the initial deviation. The analysis was carried out by means of Newton's equations of motion written for the element, but uh, the integration of the, or the solution of the equations obtained was uh, not a very easy process. The equation is an integral differential equation which is highly nonlinear. We proceeded, therefore, in the following manner. We assumed first that in the slow-loading process in a testing machine, it was most likely that the deviations from the so-called static or quasi-static solution, which can be obtained by neglecting the inertia term in the equations, should be comparatively small. For this reason, the first solution was the quasi-static solution, and the next step in the investigation was to find out the effect of this inertial term upon the behavior shown in this diagram. This quasi-static solution shows uh, four curves. These two curves present the deflections plotted in the vertical direction as a function of the ordinate, which is the displacement of the loading head of the testing machine. The displacement of the loading head of the testing machine was assumed to take place with a constant velocity c, and this boundary condition was taken uh, as uh, representing the actual column test rather than the usual assumption that the load is prescribed. The actual operator of the testing machine has no means of, of influencing the load directly. All he can do is to influence the deflections, and the loads have to take care of themselves. The uh, lower line represents the behavior of the column which is initially very straight, while the full line represents the behavior of the column which is initially rather curved. It can be seen that at the outset the, the very straight column deflects very slowly, but as the value of this non-dimensional displacement parameter psi approaches unity, the deflections increase very rapidly. The value psi equals 1 corresponds to that particular displacement of the loading head under which 
the euler load would be reached in an initially perfectly straight column. This displacement uh, will be referred to in the future as the Euler displacement of the loading head. The less straight column starts to deflect very much more rapidly, but even this column accelerates its motion considerably in the neighborhood of the Euler displacement, and for very large deformations, the two displacements do not deviate from one another very much. The remaining two curves represent the load history, the force divided by the Euler load, which increases almost perfectly linearly at the outset until the Euler displacement is reached, when the column is initially very straight, and then this Euler load remains constant during the rest of the uh, loading process, while the deflections of the column increase very rapidly. The less straight column deviates from this uh, linearity at about one-half the Euler load and approaches the Euler load asymptotically. The next step in the investigation was to find out how well this behavior corresponds to the actual behavior in the testing machine when the inertia of the structure is also taken into account. And the perturbation theory showed that the deviations from this behavior consist of very rapid, very small amplitude oscillations whose amplitude, whose uh, period is of the order of magnitude of one hundredth of a second, and whose amplitude is never increased to any great extent, uh, never more than by about a factor of two or three, if one neglects friction altogether, which means that in the presence of friction in the knife edges and internal damping in the column, the, uh, any incipient vibrations in such a column in the ordinary testing machine will be damped out very rapidly. The next slide shows a column in the testing machine. It was a natural desire on our part to check the predictions of our theoretical investigations in experiments. I don't think I have to explain uh, this diagram in great detail. This is the column which is provided with two adjustable knife edges. The whole thing rests on a plate which is supported by a thin-walled cylinder to which strain gauges are bonded, and this cylinder acts as a dynamometer by which we can measure the value of the load as a function of time. The displacement of the loading head is measured by means of a uh, plate which again is provided with strain gauges, and in this manner we can measure in an oscilloscope the deflections of the loading head simultaneously with the load, and we also had two strain gauges cemented to the opposite sides of the column in the middle in order to measure the maximum compressive, maximum strain on the competitive and on the tensile side of the column in flexures, <coughs> or at the moment of buckling. This diagram shows an oscillogram which was obtained with a very slender column in this manner. It can be seen that all the four traces are straight lines which uh, continue without any disturbance up to this point where buckling occurs. At the moment of buckling when the Euler load is reached, the upper trace, which represents the train in the middle of the column on the convex side in uh, buckling, starts to decrease, and the strain on the con uh, on the convex side of the on the concave side of the column begins to increase at a different rate. The load increases slowly up to the moment of buckling and then remains constant and the loading head of the testing machine descends to the uniform rate and starts to descend a little more rapidly because it is not possible to control the motion of the head exactly in such a hydraulic testing machine. The two dots at the top of the diagram are time marks which are spaced three quarters of a second apart, which means that this test was carried out with the comparatively slow speed of the Fairchild camera which, uh, by which uh, we photographed the results. 
The next slide shows uh, the same type of results as taken from a different uh, test uh, oscillogram, which was run uh, for which the, the Fairchild camera was run at a very much higher speed, so as to enable us to get more details out of the diagram. I'm showing this diagram only because the next slide gives the results of the theory, and one can see that these two diagrams are in very good agreement. When we proceeded to testing short columns in the same hydraulic testing machine of 12,000 pounds capacity and ran the test with the same film speed, this was the diagram which resulted. The time marks are again spaced three quarters per second apart, which indicates that the behavior of this column was radically different from that of the very long column. Up to the buckling load, everything is the same as before, but at the moment of buckling, the strains change with great rapidity. The load in the column drops quite suddenly, and the loading head also is displaced suddenly a considerable amount. The interesting thing about this test was that in 34, experiments carried out in that particular series of tests, every single short column buckled rapidly, just uh, the way it is shown here, and every single long column buckled gradually. It was natural on our part, therefore, I suppose, to assume that the difference in behavior was due to the difference in the stress-strain relationship. For the very long columns at the moment of buckling, the stress-strain relationship is the linear relationship originally described by Robert Hooke. While in for the short columns, the, uh, the behavior is uh, governed by non-linear law, which is much more complicated. We wanted to derive this snap-through process, this sudden buckling, which incidentally is always accompanied by an audible thud from a, an analysis in which we assumed <coughs> the stress-strain law to be a non-linear one. Unfortunately, a great many efforts on our part failed to succeed. It seemed that the relief in the compression that is observable in the column because of the lateral deflections of the middle of the column during the buckling process are always so great that the compressive load applied to the column is diminished considerably and in such a manner any incipient buckling is stopped effectively when in the analysis the assumption is made that the loading head is displaced downward at a uniform velocity. For that reason, we introduced an extra term in our uh, equations which represented the elasticity of the testing machine. No testing machine has yet been built that was perfectly rigid because its parts naturally are always made of elastic material. And if one takes into account this elasticity of the testing machine, then the analysis gives us the required or desired result. Uh, the next slide will show us the stress-strain relationship which we assumed. The analysis is a rather complicated one because in addition to the nonlinearity of the load displacement relationship which uh, we had in the case of the elastic column, we had to make use of a nonlinear relationship between stress and strain. And we tried to get the simplest possible representation of this nonlinear stress-strain law. The simplest possible solution of this problem is the assumption of a simple power law according to which the strain is a power function of the stress and the form of the stress strain law depends <coughs> on the exponent n. When the exponent is unity one obtains Hooke's law, the straight line, and uh, as the exponent increases higher and higher curvature results. Naturally none of these curves except perhaps n equals 1 can represent the actual behavior of the material with any great accuracy because 
Each one of these curves begins with a vertical tangent, and we know very well that that is not the case with actual materials. Nevertheless, this representation is not a bad one if one restricts his attention to a certain range of the stress, and between 30,000 and 40,000 pounds per square inch in the aluminum alloys we took for our test as well as for our theory. Uh, the representation by means of uh, such a power law is a reasonably good one. It is better if one uses a higher value for n, for instance 9 or 11, but that again in, uh, induces rather uh, disagreeable uh, computational difficulties, and for that reason we compromise in our accuracy by choosing n equal to 3. The next slide shows the results of our calculations when they were carried out on the assumption that the inertia term in the equations could be neglected. This is again the same approach as in the elastic case. First, we neglected the inertia term and we obtained these connections between load in the vertical direction and midpoint displacement of the column in the horizontal direction. The only interesting fact about these curves is that they show a definite decrease in the load as the as the, um, the lateral deflection of the column increases beyond the maximum load and perhaps also that the maximum load is highly sensitive to the initial deviation from straightness. Incidentally, curves of this kind were obtained by Dr. von Kalman in 1908 for the actual stress-strain relationship for steel used in his test and uh, there is a great deal of similarity between his curves and these, which incidentally shows that the cubic law assumed in our analysis, although very simple, still retains the essential features of the problem. A more interesting uh, curve, set of curves results if uh, the force plotted again in the vertical direction is now is now plotted against the displacement of the loading head. The first two curves correspond to different eccentricity ratios and are simply obtainable from the curves uh, shown in the preceding diagram. The remaining two curves are modified by including the elasticity of the testing machine and this makes all the difference because now it can be seen that in the ordinary loading process, if we follow perhaps the dotted line, uh, which corresponds to the more accurate straight column, at the beginning, the load increases practically linearly with deflection of the loading head, but after a while, in the neighborhood of the maximum of the load that can be reached, the curve reverses itself, and then again proceeds to the right in this lower third branch or portion of the column, of the curve. Now, such a trace, of course, cannot be followed in an ordinary column test because it would be possible only if at this point the direction of the motion of the loading head would be reversed, which is never done in an ordinary test. Consequently, when the loading head displacement is increased beyond this point, there is no possibility for the column to proceed deflecting further in any continuous manner in which equilibrium is always maintained. The only possibility for the column is to jump suddenly from this high value of the load to the low value of load on the lower portion of the curve and incidentally to increase its mid-deflection very considerably as uh, can be seen if one uh, goes back to the preceding diagram uh, where these quantities were shown. An analysis of the effect of the inertia term in the equations was again carried out by means of the perturbation method, and it showed that a small oscillation superimposed upon uh, the deflections shown by this dotted curve here would result again in very rapid oscillations, which would not increase very much with time, 
But the interesting fact was also observed that in the neighborhood of the maximum load, the amplification of any initial disturbance is very great. As a matter of fact, mathematically, it goes beyond all bounds. One can get displacements of arbitrary magnitude, but of course, with those large deflections, the perturbation theory itself is not valid anymore. Uh, similarly, a small oscillation superimposed upon the lower portion of the curve results in, in uh, vibrations of uh, a more or less constant amplitude, but any initial deflection from the equilibrium position corresponding to the middle portion of the curve results in ever-increasing deformations and consequently uh, the theory again breaks down because it is valid only for small deformations. Now this investigation was carried out only for uh, small deflections from the quasi-equilibrium, from the, from the quasi-static equilibrium position because the perturbation theory permits only such an investigation. In order to get a better insight into the actual state of affairs, we uh, made use of another method which is quite well known in the theory of nonlinear vibrations. We integrated the differential equation once on the assumption that the value of the loading head displacement was fixed. For a constant value of psi, either here or here or in any other place, it was possible to carry out this integration and to plot the results in a diagram which is known as the phase plane. This phase plane diagram simply correlates the veloc uh, lateral velocities of the uh, vibrating column with lateral deflections. And any of the curves shown in this diagram represents a possible sequence of corresponding displacements and velocities, provided that there is no energy loss during the process. Friction and damping are neglected. Uh, in the vertical direction we have the velocity, in the horizontal direction we plotted the we plotted the displacement of the midpoint of the column, and uh, this diagram represents the conditions in that portion of the previous diagram in which there was a single unique solution to the uh, connection between displacement, loading head displacement, and load. The interesting thing about this diagram is that the three curves shown are not similar, which means that the amplitude of the oscillation uh, is the determining factor what kind of emotion one obtains. And as a matter of fact, if one integrates these curves, one, uh, integrates around these curves once more and obtains the period of the oscillations, it turns out that that period is different depending upon the amplitude. The next slide shows the conditions uh, in a phase plane diagram corresponding to the triple values region of the previous uh, curve. And here, this point is the equilibrium on the uppermost portion of the curve corresponding to very small deflections from the initial uh, state. This point corresponds to, to, again, to stable equilibrium on the large deflection portion of the curve. And the saddle point in between represents the unstable equilibrium at the at the represented by the middle portion of the curve, which was uh, labeled unstable on the diagram twice removed. Uh, again, we can see an interesting fact that small, deform uh, small deflections from this equilibrium position, for instance, a displacement to this point, will result only in oscillations of a small amplitude around the equilibrium position. But if the deflection is large enough to move over beyond this saddle point, then the ensuing motion will be a will be a an oscillation about the large deflection equilibrium position corresponding to the lowermost curve, and in the presence presence of friction, which was neglected in drawing these curves, this motion would not continue in uh, indefinitely around this curve, but would spiral slowly into the uh, stable equilibrium position represented by this point. 
the interesting fact is shown by this curve, therefore, that the stability of a short column in the testing machine in this range of the deflection of the loading head depends entirely upon the magnitude of the disturbance. This is the deviation from the generally accepted small deflection theory because it shows that a system can be perfectly stable for small disturbances and it becomes completely unstable for large disturbances. The next diagram shows the, the almost critical conditions uh, very near the maximum load value. This is practically a degenerate case of the previous diagram because the saddle point of the unstable equilibrium position and the small deflection stable equilibrium position practically coincide at this point. In this case, therefore, a very small displacement from the equilibrium, from the stable equilibrium position will result in a sudden motion which will end only in the large deflection position. It is possible to integrate around these curves once more and on the assumption of a very small initial deviation from uh, quasi-static equilibrium, I was able to calculate the time necessary for the column to snap over from this small deflection position into the large deflection position, and the result obtained was one and a half milliseconds, 0.0015 second, which obviously shows that buckling takes place in the form of snap action, and uh, the only way I can represent it easily is really to do that. One hears it and one sees it. It just snaps over from one position into the other. Naturally, we were interested in knowing whether our theoretical conclusions could be realized in experiments. Fortunately, we had a much more rigid testing machine available, a 200,000-pound uh, 200, capacity uh, screw-type, lever-type machine, and that proved to be rigid enough to eliminate completely the snap action. This diagram has again the same three curves as the previous one, and this lowermost curve shows the variation of the load with time. The unit length corresponds to one second. Consequently, we can see from this diagram that indeed the deflections increase up to the maximum load and then they start to decrease slowly and absolutely no snap action is present. When we introduced a more elastic uh, uh, dynamometer into the system and thereby increased the elasticity of the testing machine plus dynamometer combination, this was the result. In this case, the load increased and at the moment of buckling there was a sudden snap and the load suddenly dropped about 1,000 pounds, and at the same time the loading head of the testing machine dropped suddenly about one thousandth of an inch. These were all measured from these calibrated silograms. The, uh, the initial elasticity of the testing machine, of the uh, bigger testing machine, was, of the, uh, was approximately one million pounds per inch, the modification by means of the, of the uh, elastic dynamometer reduced this, uh, this um, rigidity of the testing machines to about 660,000 pounds per inch. And incidentally, all the original tests, all the 34 original tests which I mentioned earlier were carried out in a hydraulic testing machine whose rigidity was only 150,000 pounds per inch. These differences were perfectly uh, sufficient to modify the behavior of the short column completely. This is the oscillogram of a medium length column which, in which the load increased uniformly up to the oil or load then remained constant for a while and during this part of the diagram, the deflections of the column increase very rapidly as can be seen from the changes, the rather rapid changes in the strains on the compression and on the tension side of the column until the combined flexural and compressive strain exceeded the elastic limit of the material sufficiently in a sufficiently large portion of the cross section to cause the load to 
reseed and uh, then the column tobacco rather suddenly. This diagram shows the results of a theoretical calculation which was carried out uh, not with the actual column but by means of a model of a column which was a much simplified version of the actual column and permitted the use of the actual stress strain diagram of the 24ST aluminum alloy. And one can see that the shape of the curves in this diagram agrees very well with those obtained from the, from the test. This diagram is reproduced here from Dr. Monkarman's uh, thesis. And it shows the shape of the stress strain curve and uh, the straight lines which represent the elasticity of the testing machine. I do not want to go into detail, but I can say that a complete physical explanation of the SNAP process was contained in this thesis of Dr. Monkarman in 1910. And if I had read this thesis more carefully earlier, I could have saved probably half a year's of work for myself. <laughs> Incidentally, I might mention that the same theory for the short column was derived in 1912 by Sir Richard Southwell, who I, I just noticed is also in the audience. He worked out the same theory independently of Dr. Moncana. This diagram represents the collapse of a column in a deadweight type loading. Most engineers assume that putting a deadweight on a structure is equivalent to applying a constant load. This diagram proves that that is not the case. Naturally, the direction of the load remains constant during, uh, during the whole buckling process. But the deflections, the lateral deflections of the column take place so rapidly that the relief in compression is much greater than the, uh, than, uh, the acceleration of the weight which is applied to the structure. And in such a manner, after the application of the load to this very elastic column, very long column, slender uh, ratio of 112, the load remained practically constant while the deflections of the midpoint increased reasonably rapidly as shown by this somewhat wavy curve here on one side and on the other side and the deflection of the uh, and the displacement of the upper endpoint of the column of the upper knife edge also proceeded rather slowly until uh, the whole thing uh, started to gather momentum and the deflection suddenly increased and at the same time the load very suddenly decreased. Consequently, if one wants to apply loads, constant loads and not constant weight, then it is necessary to introduce some extremely elastic element into the structural loading system. The next two or three diagrams will deal with the uh, results of an investigation of very rapid load application. When uh, the same equations of motion which were written originally for the investigation of the behavior of the column in the ordinary routine test are integrated for a very rapid loading, naturally different methods of mathematical analysis must be used because of the differences in the values of the parameters governing the process. Uh, but it is perfectly possible to obtain results for this case also. This is again the perfectly elastic column and this curve represents the quasi-static solution, the deflections plotted against the displacement of the loading head, while the dynamic curve for a very rapid loading, which incidentally in this case would correspond approximately to a loading head displacement of four inches per second, and the tendency ratio of the column is about 150. Uh, when uh, such a rapid loading is taking place, then the midpoint of the column cannot keep pace with the loading and the lateral deflections lag behind those corresponding to static equilibrium in very slow loading. After a while the, uh, the column is accelerated and then of course it overshoots the static condition and some vibrations ensue. Corresponding to this 
difference in behavior, in deflection behavior of the calm in the dynamic test from that in the static test. The load time history is also different, and in particular, this large lag in deflections induces much higher compressive strains in the column and consequently also compressive stresses and results in much higher maximum loads which are observable in a rapid test. The next diagram uh, presents the results of a detailed numerical investigation in which the overload factor, which is simply the load, the maximum load registered in the test divided by the Euler load, is plotted against this non-dimensional parameter omega, which is representative of the sendrance ratio of the column as well as of the speed of loading. An ordinary column test would correspond usually to a value of omega in the order of magnitude of 10 to the 6th or 10 to the 7th or 10 to the 8th. Consequently, there is no overload factor. One gets the ordinary Euler load, as is well known from practical experience. But when the load, uh, loading is very rapid, and when the initial deviations from straightness, this the value of this quantity small e, which is the amplitude of the initial deviation from straightness divided by the radi uh, radius of gyration of the cross-section, when this is very small, one can easily get uh, load factors of 2, 3, or even 4. Again, we were desirous of checking these theoretical predictions in experiment, and for that purpose we built a testing machine, which is essentially a rotating disk, which is provided with a cam, and we have a column inserted here with knife edges, and when the operator sees on the tachometer that the speed of rotation is just as he wanted it to be, when he pulls the switch, and the trigger will bring the column in contact with the cam, and a very rapid loading ensues. Uh, the next diagram shows some results obtained by this, with this testing machine. We do not have very many results yet. The machine is still in the calibration phase. But this diagram shows some of the interesting features. Um, the strain on the two sides of the middle of the of the column remains practically constant, I mean increases, uh, yes, it remains zero. These two uh, traces are spaced apart only because otherwise we couldn't see them uh, separately. They are really the same. Both of them are zero. And the load in the column is also zero up to the point where the cam hits the, the uh, column. At that point, a more or less linear increase in the load uh, results, except for small oscillations which are no doubt introduced by the jar of the machine. The strains increase more or less uniformly, but after about five uh, milliseconds, the one of the strains reverses, the other one increases more rapidly, and uh, the column starts to move rapidly in the lateral direction, and after about 6.2 milliseconds, as I can remember from the evaluation of this uh, diagram, the cam leaves the uh, end of the column, and the load suddenly drops again back to zero. The maximum value of the load reached here was 2.4 times the Euler load, because this particular point is the Euler load here. This was naturally calibrated. <coughs> this uh, seems to show that the theoretical predictions are not unreasonable. The final item which I would like to discuss uh, concisely tonight is the buckling of a column whose material is subject to creep. Creep is the property of materials to elongate as time goes on without any change in the loading. If a constant load is applied to a bar and uh, the effect is a steadily increasing deformation, then we always speak of creep, and uh, all aeronautical engineers know that this is a dreaded feature of the behavior of materials at very high temperatures, which no doubt we shall see in our airplanes in the not-too-distant future. 
when um, the material creeps, it makes no sense at all to talk even about a buckling load, because even the slightest initial deviation from straightness will result in eventual collapse, provided the observer sits and there and looks at the test long enough. <laughs> we have to introduce a new concept, which is uh, that of the critical time, the time at which buckling occurs. And Undoubtedly, this will become an important factor in the design of planes and particularly missiles in the future, where uh, some of these missiles certainly will not have to fly for more than a few minutes, and uh, it will be entirely unnecessary to provide them with columns whose lifetime would be indefinitely long. Uh, the results of an investigation of the buckling of uh, such a column are shown in this diagram, the conditions on, uh, assumed for the material of the column are approximately those that would be observed with a 24ST, I'm not quite sure, with an aluminum alloy column anyway, at 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, the load applied to this column in this analysis was 75% of the buckling load only, and even under such a fraction of the buckling load corresponding to the elevated temperature, the column is seen to buckle at, after only 83 seconds of load application. The initial deviations from straightness were assumed quite small. This would correspond with the ordinary column which we use in our test. This would correspond to only one thousandth of an inch deviation amplitude. And uh, these deviations increase slowly at the beginning, and then they start to increase very rapidly. And they approach infinity within a finite time if the, the steady state of creep law is, is a nonlinear one. When the steady state of creep law is a linear one, then uh, very large deformations can take place only after an indefinitely long period of time. The Next diagram, I believe this is the last diagram I have, uh, indicates the effects of uh, changes in the initial deviation from straightness as well as changes in the load acting upon the column, upon the lifetime of the column, and the rather heartening facts that can be derived from this uh, diagram are the following. First of all, a change in the initial deviation from straightness is not very instrumental in changing the critical time. The topmost diagram corresponds to E equals 0.001. The middle, the, uh, the topmost curve, I mean, the middle curve has a 10 times greater initial deviation and the, and the last curve, again, 10 times greater deviation and the lifetime of the column is increased, say, at a load of uh, about 85% uh, of the oil load from, say, uh, 18 seconds to 40, to about 50 seconds, and then again to 82 seconds. While a change in the load alters the critical time very radically, if one would uh, would reduce the load from 90% of the oil load to 80%, then as far as I can remember, the, in every single one of these three curves, the lifetime would be increased by about a factor of two, or at least a factor of two. This means that the initial deviations from straightness, which cannot be controlled by the designer, have a comparatively small effect, while the average stress in the column, which is, which is easily controlled by the designer, has a very large effect. This means that the designer can easily read, increase slightly the cross-sectional area of his column if necessary and thus provide the necessary, the required safety. In concluding, I would like to say that I hope I have succeeded in proving to you that buckling is not a simple phenomenon. <laughs> A short column compressed in a testing machine is stable if its equilibrium is disturbed slightly, but it is unstable when the disturbance is large. 
Its buckling is gradual when it is compressed in a very rigid testing machine, but it snaps through suddenly when the testing machine is elastic. The buckling load also depends upon the speed of loading. In a rapid test, materially high loads can be reached in a, short, in a slow test. Significant differences arise when the nature of the loading is altered. We can prescribe the displacement of the loading head of the testing machine or the magnitude of the applied load. As another alternative, the load can be applied by means of dead weights. Finally, creeping the column leads to entirely new phenomena, which makes the critical load lose its meaning and necessitate the introduction of the concept of a critical time. This apparently bewildering maze becomes a logical structure if we revert to the dynamic criterion of buckling and define the buckling load in a fun fundamental physical manner rather than by a mathematical abstraction. We have to remember what stability means to the designing engineer. For him, a column is stable if it remains structurally sound under the conditions of loading to which it is subjected and in the presence of all the disturbances that can be expected to occur during the lifetime of the structure. On the basis of such a down-to-earth definition, it is possible to develop mathematical methods for the calculation of the stability of the structural elements of supersonic airplanes which have to operate at high temperatures and under dynamic conditions of loading. I wish to close this lecture by expressing my gratitude to all those men in my organization who helped me in the development of the theory and in obtaining the experimental results and to the Office of Naval Research of the United States Navy, who were the sponsors of these investigations. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our custom to have no discussion after the Wilberite Lecture, but to ask uh, a member of the Society to express the audience's thanks to the lecturer. And I think the most ungracious thing for the President to do is to tread on, shall I say, the corns of the uh, member who has undertaken that task. But I will uh, indulge in one remark. Uh, my admiration for Professor Hopp as an individual uh, is greatly increased by his extraordinary accuracy in predicting how long he would take to do what seemed to me an almost superhuman task, to condense this uh, for you this evening. He said he would take 55 minutes. Professor Hoff, you did. <laughs> uh, it's a triumph of exposition, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I now ask uh, Mr. George Edwards, uh, one of the Society's Vice Presidents, to uh, express uh, your thanks to the lecturer, and I shall then ask you to give uh, your, the usual expression of your feelings. Mr. President, Professor Hoff, ladies and gentlemen, it's with great pleasure that I, 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 I rise to, to propose this vote of thanks. Um, I, I was asked to do it at short notice. Um, it, it is all the more pleasant because of that. The President was gracious indeed in um, preparing the lecture for the fact that I should make no comments on the lecture. Um, he didn't explain to me whether that was because I hadn't seen it long enough to, uh, to, to, to be able to digest it, or whether I wouldn't understand it. <laughs> um, so, so as not to let the side down too badly, I think that the best compromise that I can effect is to say that I need more time to look at it before, <laughs> before I can comment on which of the true premises is the correct one. The fact is that I've sat there and I've marveled at this man who virtually didn't use a note and spoke on a subject such as that for very nearly one hour without any hesitation 
and, and was quite obviously a complete master of the subject. To me, it was a quite incredible performance. The business of uh, struts and things has been plaguing people in the, the aviation structural game for many years, and I can just remember what seems a long time ago, feeling very bitter about the fact that the Euler strut never did seem to be there in practice and that um, end fixations always seemed to be the controlling thing that decided what a strut was going to do. And uh, you can take it from me so that in this country the uh, assumptions that are attached to uh, the, the, the end fixation condition of a strut, particularly um, stringers on the uh, on, on, on the top panel of a, a skin stringer wing combination, the assumptions that I've seen made in this country make the prognostication of the characters who built the Greek columns the most scientific. <laughs> <laughs> The general gist of your message, I think, was that, um, as always in this business, things are not always what they seem. Um, I was a bit, um, I was a bit depressed to think that there were going to be still bigger differences between the things that the testing machine was alleged to substantiate and the things that happened in real life. I got thoroughly depressed when, a little bit from the end, you, uh, you sort of. Introduced another reason for uh, for the creeps and brightened, <laughs> brightened up powerfully in, in the closing little bit when you said that the, the thing that the chap did in the shop didn't matter too much as long as you passed it on a bit more a bit more of the strut when you put it in, which of course is what every specimen in both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> as long as you put in a bit more than you thought you needed, it would probably be all right in the end. <laughs> so, sir, I would like to, to say to you, that on behalf of us all, um, how grateful we are to you for, um, for, for, for this lecture. Will we write lectures in general uh, take the form of, of a more general review of a field? You've attacked a specialized subject and you've attacked it in a most masterly fashion and I repeat once more in a fashion that I have never seen equaled in all the lectures that I've watched. I think you've made a wonderful beginning to this Anglo-American conference and we in this country do welcome so much um, the, the, the arrival of the, the, the aviation kings from America and we welcome you in particular to give this thing such a such a start. We've seen you perform before at Brighton. At Brighton we, we learnt to know you and I may say to know your charming lady and once more we, we welcome you both back from the bottom of our hearts and I would like formally so to move a vote of thanks to you for this most excellent performance. Thank you.